This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It's wonderful to welcome so many of you here. All over the world, when people are looking for an illustration for how the gospel can change the world, if you listen to Charles Colson or if you read Vishal Mangalwadi or uh, Ajith Fernando, R.C. Sproul, when people are looking for an illustration for how the gospel can change the world, they start talking about London because they start talking about Wilberforce and Spurgeon and Whitfield and Elizabeth Fry and John Newton and all these people who have made history here. But fascinatingly, each one of these people, they had heroes. One of Spurgeon's heroes was John Newton. John Newton's hero was George Whitfield. And you find these people looking back and looking back and looking back, which is interesting because history hasn't finished. That gospel which motivated and inspired each one of these people is still inspiring, building, changing. But more than that, it's making dead people live. And we're living in a moment where not only believers but unbelievers are saying, what's going on? Why am I getting trouble for saying stuff which only a couple of years ago was obvious? And we are so grateful for voices like that of Sharon James, who did her first degree in history at Cambridge. She studied theology, and she's now doing outstanding work with the Christian Institute, where she puts all that perspective of history, all the diligence of social study through the litmus test of what does the Bible actually say about these things. So it's a real delight to welcome Sharon James. Now, Sharon has written this outstanding book, an important book for our time, The Lies We're Told and the Truth We Must Hold. Sharon, what's particularly thrilling from our perspective is how you have showed how the reason we are in the moment we are in, it's not a mistake, it's not a coincidence, it's because of things that have happened, thinkers who have shaped this moment. I wonder, Sharon, could you, this is a very broad question, but could you give us some of the influences who have led us to this moment? I think you're very well placed to do that. Well, I love your introduction because I passionately believe, Ben, that history is about real people. And when you look at the ideas that are coming up in history, you say, how do these ideas actually work out in the lives of those real people and more broadly in society? So a litmus test, bad ideas bear bitter fruit, truth bears good fruit. Now, at the moment, you're absolutely right. People look around and they say, what is going on? For example, at the moment in New Zealand, uh, uh, Professor Gareth Cooper's under disciplinary investigation. And you might say, what's he done wrong? Well, what he's done wrong is that he dared to just raise a question, an eyebrow, if you like, raise a question mark about a policy that was being proposed that children in the classroom should be given equal time to science and Maori mythology. So he questioned that, but somebody said, but somebody possibly might be offended by that question. Now, no Maori, no um, indigenous person had expressed offence, but they might be offended. And nowadays we are in territory where it's assumed that if you offend somebody, you have done something wrong. Um, And people say, well, what's going on? What's going on when my 12-year-old comes home from school and says, Mom, I'm pansexual? What's going on when to simply say a woman is a woman can get Kathleen Stock uh, effectively ejected from Sussex University last year? People say, what's going on? Well, you say, well, look at the ideas, look at the people. And fundamentally, behind this whole cultural moment that we're in 
you've got the fundamental idea there is no creator God. Mm. We can explain the universe without God. Mm. Uh, 1859, the origin of species. Several decades later, that, the descent of man also by Darwin. We're on a continuum with nature. We can explain things without God. Well, if there's no creator God, wonderful. Hey, presto, there won't be a judgment. So if there's not going to be a judgment and we don't have to answer to a creator God, well, we construct our own morality for ourselves. We have to find our own authentic morality for ourselves. Nobody can tell me what to do. Why should you tell me what to do? If there's no outside God's eye view out there, we're left to construct our own morality and our own meaning. So not only is there no absolute morality, that has further spun out and panned out into the current assumption there is no ultimate truth. Mm. And we end up in... We, we did have a universe because the God I, the God out there united everything in himself. He was the source of meaning. Ground, he grounded reality. But now it's... It, it, we're, all, we're all fragmented. We all make our own meaning. We make our own morality. And so it ends up as brute power. Yes. And then it ends up that actually you say some voices are, are worth more than others. Mm. You have to take away voices from those with assumed privilege and give it back to the so-called victims. And this is a very divisive uh, phenomenon of identity politics. We can talk more about that if you want and how, mm. where that's come from. But we are now living out a situation where culturally people are thinking about the things that divide them. Yes in contrast to the glorious biblical truth that we are one race, one humanity, all made in the image of God, and that should unite us. Mm -hmm. Yes, we can glory in cultural differences because there are good things about those things, but ultimately we know that there is one creator God and we are yes. united under that, yeah. and there is a common human dignity. Yeah. But, but that's, that's been eroded, and it's yes. totally tragic. And it's wonderful, isn't it, that there are non-Christians who are open-eyed enough to say... Things are going seriously wrong. And it's interesting, we're at a moment where the so-called liberal project is kind of blowing up mm. because it was grounded in the so-called enlightenment, which said human reason can solve problems without reference to God. Mm. Yeah, right, look at the 20th century. Mm. Yes, quite. <laughs> and, and people are admitting that now. Mm. And, and mm. this is our moment as Christians. This is the really exciting thing. Mm -hmm. We're into that situation of cultural... Um, uh, confusion, mm -hmm. we say, well, we do not have to remain in that state of confusion because God has spoken mm -hmm. and what he says is true. Mm -hmm. And we have this glorious truth to offer to others. Yes. Amen. And strikingly, one of the things you, you keep come, keeps coming up in your book is that people want things which you think, well, that's not such a bad sounding thing. Equality doesn't sound like a bad thing. And people want these things. But it's like they got a sense. I remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones saying, if someone comes into your office as a doctor presenting in acute pain, it is immoral to give them a palliative yeah. because there is a problem, a deep problem. And if we're seeing, oh, there's uh, problems in the world, there are problems in the world. So therefore, I think we should just we should stop the pain. Now, you've got to get underneath it. You've got to get underneath it. Now, the people, some of the people you're talking about historically, it's fascinating. The people who have proposed the solutions historically, I'm thinking specifically of characters like Marx and Rousseau, who you're touching on, their own lives. I, I wonder if you could talk to us a little about, give us, some, give us some historical examples of people who are apparently the doctors of our moment. And they've been mugged by reality. Exactly. That's the interesting thing. It's a bit like a toddler trying to kick down a mountain. It doesn't end well for the toddler. So 
you, you mentioned Marx. I mean, he had this great passion for social justice for the workers. You look at his own life, he took zero interest in real workers. The one worker he ever had real-life contact with was his house servant, um, Helen Demuth. And she was never paid a wage. She was just given board and lodging, atrociously treated. He got her pregnant. She had to put her child in a foundling orphanage. You know, he sat in a library, and he had every concern with people, capital P, little interest in small P people. And when he came across real workers, not interested, because it was all the system. It was the system. And when you look at the outworking of Marxism in the 20th century, it was the horrific idea that human reason constructs this utopia of equal outcomes. But to get there, you have to bulldoze over the reality of individual differences. And because you don't believe in a creator God, Marx believed that religion was a a terrible false consciousness. No creator God. So humans are no longer in the image of God. They are dispensable. They're just human material. And frankly, to get to the point where you get equality and revolution, anything is justified. Mm -hmm. Anything is justified. And that's where you get the millions killed in the gulag. Mm. And Marx was... It wasn't just a sort of mild hostility to Christianity. It was a fierce hatred Mm -hmm. because this was regarded as the false consciousness that kept ordinary people happy in their misery, so to speak. It lulled them into a sense of false security. Mm. And you have to get rid of this false consciousness, which is why in the 20th century, I still remember, as you do probably, the days when there were tens of thousands of Christians incarcerated in mental asylums to be re-educated out of that false consciousness. Mm -hmm. So Marx, uh, 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 when you look at his actual life, not great. Another example, if you think of the prophetess of... Um, sexual freedom, Margaret Sanger. Mm-hmm. Now, Margaret Sanger was the pioneer of uh, birth control. And if you asked Margaret Sanger, what's the cause of all human misery in the whole world? If you think of war and injustice and suffering, and she'd say, human morality, that's the cause, because it's repressing people's natural desires. What will solve all of human problems? Sexual freedom. <laughs> and she was absolutely opposed to Christian morality mm. and Christianity. Mm-hmm. When you look at her own life, not a pretty story. Yeah. Failed marriages, neglected children, uh, desperate efforts to cover up her complicity with the Nazi regime. She was right into eugenics and had a very low view of humanity. Again, mm. human waste, human weeds. Don't let these so-called, and she used horrible words like morons and so on and so on, don't let them breed. <laughs> so anti-people in mm. the interests of this utopia that was to be achieved via sexual freedom. Mm. I mean, I, I, I'm, they're well-known, but I mentioned people who, who weren't particularly well-known. There was an intellectual called David Cooper who, in the 1960s, wrote a Penguin book, I've got it on my shelves, called Death of the Family. And he fulminated against this terribly oppressive regime of the traditional family, where people are brought up just to mindlessly accept authority. And yet, when his life fell to pieces through overdoses of drugs and all the rest of it, it was his family that cared for him. Well, this is, uh, and yeah. he should have just... He should have put his book in the bin at that point. Mm -hmm. But no, lo and behold, he published it anyway, but thanked his family who had cared for him in his hour of need. And you think, can't you see the contradiction here? Yes. You can. I can. They couldn't. And I give example after example after example, because frankly, if you're an engineer and you make a production and you put it out on the road, you want to see, does this idea, does this work? 
does my product work? With ideas, how do they work out in real practice? And if they are based on untruth, they have bad effects in the lives of the people who promote the lies, and they have bad effects when they're put into practice in society as well. Yes, that's right. This is striking. You gave examples of um, Che Guevara, and here's a guy. Mm. It's striking, isn't it? There's, there's a visceral response. Yeah. Look at—he looks so cool. Yeah, He's yeah, a revolutionary, yeah. and he looks at his life, and there are people dying, injustice, and, and the things he said. And the thing is, it's such a readable account that you give here of <laughs> the, the actual life. Just a quick paragraph. Oh, I didn't know that when I got the T-shirt. And um, and similar with uh, Foucault, here's a guy whose uh, whose thought has influenced the genera- generations, and he's against the family. But who actually cares for him while he's dying of AIDS? Yeah, yeah. In, and in the but very he, hospital, he, he was. Yeah, I mean, he he had he had said, "Oh, hospitals, schools, these are all part of the hegemony, keeping people down, oppressed, um, liberate people from these dreadful institutions." And he formulated against La Salpetriere Hospital in Paris. And then when he's dying of AIDS, it's the nuns there who, who care for him, mugged by reality. Yeah, mugged example by reality. after example after example. Yes, indeed. I mean, as the pagan poet Horace said, you can drive nature out with a pitchfork, but she'll always come hurrying back. Um, Truth will out in the end. Mm. Now, also, you will know, of course, speaking from history, the actual people who have turned back revolution... <laughs> and who have actually brought life, have been people who have worked in the grassroots. How? Well, it's a powerful historic fact. Powerful, mm. powerful, uh, a fact which has been recognised by non-Christian historians, that when there was revolution in France and tens of thousands were killed, why didn't we have one here? Exactly. Well, because well, John Wesley. Exactly. Well, what happened with John Wesley? Exactly. Did he try a bit harder? Yeah. Did he try a bit harder? No, something happened. Yeah. He understood yeah. About the, the God who makes people alive by faith in Jesus. The thing is, no question, but there is such a thing as social justice, injustice. Now, because we're made in the image of God, we care about that, and we want to get rid of social injustice. But you have to say, at the root of it all is human sinfulness, and that sinfulness runs right through. I am a sinner. There is sin in my heart. That line between good and evil runs through every human heart, like Solzhenitsyn right. said. Yes. So the revolutionaries want to eradicate everyone that they associate with privilege or injustice or oppression or whatever. And, it, and, and, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a slash and burn and destroy endeavour which ends up killing millions. Mm-hmm. Between about 1900 and about 1980, R.J. Rommel estimated 170 million people killed by their own governments. Now, this was human ideologies being pushed into practice the christian view is to say there is sin in the world but we're not just going to slash and burn and destroy everything we are going to reform we're going to work for reform when you look at the great social reformers shaftesbury and so forth Mm -hmm. they're not pulling down they're trying to build up they're building on the best of the past they are challenging injustice but they're using peaceful means to get to reform and in that way whole societies have been transformed so where you get christians with that commitment to love god love neighbor you get those good fruits of social reform and when you look worldwide at those countries which have most regard for the dignity of women most regard for free speech most regard for religious liberty most regard for rule of law so on and so forth these are countries where you've had bible believing influence Mm -hmm. and conversely the countries with least freedom and the worst human rights records and the worst oppression of women those are the countries where there's been least bible believing christian influence yeah good ideas or truth 
good fruit. That's striking also, not least because the, some of the Russian people you're talking about in here, they're critical of the church. But you say, hang on, was it actually a Bible-believing? Yeah. Institutional Christianity has to be um, distinguished from real living Christianity. Real living Christianity, as Jesus said, is known by its fruits. By their fruits, you know them. Uh, do you love your neighbor? That's the, the litmus test, isn't wow. it, of real Christianity? Yes, indeed. And that's an awesome, powerful thing. Of course, I think most of us in this room probably aren't going to be reformers. Um, we might like the reformers, but you do find that some of the, many of the heroes, for example, of London's church history, as well as in the Bible, quite ordinary. Absolutely. And you, characters like John Newton and, and people who might have been forgotten had it not been for Absolutely. his hymns and so on. Mm-hmm. And you find, but you, we, one of the things we see in the city when we go up, that, we go up the street that he used to walk up every night, You'd have to walk up it in all weathers to go and stand outside Bedlam. I've done that walk with you. There it's you go. a great, it's a great moment. Yeah, absolutely. And you think, what's, what's that all about? Mm. Oh, he was changing the world. Yeah, he was actually by loving. He was just loving someone yeah. who everyone else said, "Why would you bother?" Somebody who in those days was classed as a lunatic, but he said, "Made in the image of God." Well, this is that's it. the point. Now, this brings us to my next question, which is. Presently, the world, as we're saying, are recognizing that things are going crazy. And we're finding people, uh, we're finding ourselves closer to people who are not believers than some institutional Christian figures and so on, who are saying this is this has gone too far. However, we therefore, we are tempted, and especially in the, in the social media age, we are tempted to join in the knee jerk and just say, oh, everyone come back and become reactionary, conservative, just avoid being one of those nasty things. What do you, how would you define what is the real answer, which you give the last few chapters to? Well, when you look at the fundamental lies, no God, no absolute morality, no ultimate truth, it doesn't work out well in society. You get an increasingly divided society, you get tension between people, And it's interesting that there are atheists who are realising that this is a very destructive tendency. Mm. So some of you may have come across um, Peter Bogassian, Helen Pluckrose, people like this, part of the new atheist movement, actually. But they're saying this is a a really alarming uh, uh, thought process, which is saying no ultimate truth. Science is just an oppression. Logic is just an oppression. All that matters is individual experience. You can't base a society or a civilization, a functioning society, on that. Mm-hmm. But unless you say there is a God out there who defines truth and reality, I, I, I think that they're left without a foundation for what they want to do. <laughs> and this is our moment as Christians, not to run away and hide, not to say, oh, well, everyone's fighting so badly, I don't want to join in a nasty, messy fight and get my hands dirty. I'm just going to keep clear of this whole thing. We need to understand what's going on and then say the Bible gives the actual foundation for those things that we hold most dear. Human dignity, societal flourishing. We can speak clearly about these things because we say that There is a creator who has made everybody in his image. If you dispense with that and you say we are just on a continuum with a stone or a cactus or a camel, as Bronowski famously said in The Ascent of Man, well, why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you um, treat people as human material and eliminate the least able or the struggling or the 
unsocial or, mm-hmm. or whoever. Mm. And, th- and that's where the eugenics movement was headed, and, and that was appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we have the ba- basis for human dignity, but then what about societal flourishing? Well, you need law and order. Well, the Bible gives the framework of saying God has ordained authorities, but they are never to be absolute because they will all have to answer to God. There's that break on tyranny. Mm. Whereas if you leave God out of the picture... Humans can say, "Well, I know how to construct my utopia, and nothing can stop me. I'm not answerable to any anybody." Mm-hmm. And that's where you get totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. So, authority but answerable to God. Work, work for the glory of God and the good of others. That's not unbridled greed, which is 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 a horrible thing. But equally, it respects the human dignity of being creative. Even secular surveys show what makes people really happy. It's not just self-fulfillment, doing my own thing. It's actually knowing that I'm serving others. That gives people satisfaction. Now, if we were just evolved, where would that come from? Mm -hmm. That's because we've been made in the image of a creator God. He's wired us all up, whether we're Christians or not, Mm. to get satisfaction and joy in helping and serving others. And that makes a working community when people are working. And then family. All of these idealists who say, oh, it's a restrictive social constructs and we need to be free of the traditional nuclear family and uh, it's a horrible bourgeoisie thing let's put reproduction in the hands of the state there are good people working for the state who try and make things right for children from broken backgrounds but the state in general makes a poor parent and the family is actually the best welfare natural welfare institution for the elderly the very young extended family and others being drawn in as well. Mm. And when you smash down the family, as every revolutionary movement has tried to do, the fallout is horrific, not least for the children. Mm. And at the moment, we're seeing global levels of fatherlessness. Mm. Uh, children without fathers, 50, 60% of children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's historically unprecedented, mm. and we have no way of knowing mm-hmm. how that is going to be working out in future years. So it doesn't look good. Mm. But the Christian... Uh, and biblical worldview of saying respect uh, God's design for marriage and the family, respect the work ethic, respect uh, law and orders, but guard against tyranny, all of these things, these biblical patterns work for human flourishing, not against it. Yes, yes. And also that each one of these, uh, an actual believer, <laughs> it's tragically, ironically, uh, when Marx says, yeah, it, 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 you, it keeps you down, but it keeps you happy. Well, that, that's, um, you know, it does keep you happy. And there is a, there's a tragedy that uh, he's giving something, says, I'm going <laughs> to get you out of it and make you happy, and, and does neither. Yeah. And actually, you do have the, the, the very real problem of you had the, uh, what was they called it in America? What was it called? When the, when the Christians, it, was, it became a, a sociological phenomenon when believers uh, got converted out of a dark broken background they'd find stability to the extent that they would move out from the poor areas and it required a distinct direction to say no remember to live among them live among them yeah. and serve be a picture um, be salt and light yeah. and i in, i give a number of examples of in in those dark years in the 20th century of the marxist tyrannies who were the people with real joy mm. even in the gulags yeah. They were the Christians. Striking. Uh, and, and just extraordinary testimonies of people suffering intensely for their faith, mm-hmm. but saying there could be no greater joy than knowing the love of God. Mm. And it couldn't be beaten out of them. Well, there you go. I, I had the extraordinary privilege of talking with a fellow who helps run Open Doors. Mm. He meets actual persecuted Christians. And this is what he said. He said, there's two things. 
two themes come out. First, you keep finding joy. You keep finding joy among these people. And the second thing he said was this. None of these persecuted, actually persecuted Christians takes their identity from their persecution. Which is powerful because, of course, we're told now, if you have suffered something, that's who you are. That is your identity. These guys say, no, I've suffered. My, My identity is someone who... He gives me living waters freely. And the great thing is that the biblical worldview gives us hope for the future. So these very, um, the, the relativistic worldview ultimately has to lead to a kind of nihilism because there's nothing ultimate and out there that is yeah. transcendent. You've closed the windows to, to what's up there and out there. Um, I don't know whether some of you might have read that classic novel by E.M. Forster, Passage to India. And there's that, incredible scene uh, in the caves where the elderly lady has a sort of breakdown, but she has this, who knows whether it's a, it's a breakdown or an epiphany, but, but there's this moment where she sees nihilism, no meaning, and, and, and the quote is something like, there is courage, there is pathos, there is love, and there is filth. Everything exists, nothing has value. What's the difference between pathos, love, courage, and filth? And at the end of the day, in, an, in, in, in a universe that is utterly relativistic, there is no difference. Mm. And that is a hopeless way to live. Mm-hmm. And there is no hope after death either. Mm. Whereas the Christian worldview gives meaning and hope for this life and the next. Amen. And that impetus to say, I will serve God and love my neighbor, even if it costs me my life. Because I don't really mind if my life is taken because I know what's happening afterwards. Mm. And that's why you get Christians on the front line of really dangerous situations, risking their lives to help others because they have that hope that they're not afraid to give up their lives. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, in, in, in an age where so many, and, and my, my passion is for young people, where many of them are being given sort of apocalyptic scenarios of doom and destruction and, mm. uh, and no hope, we should be right out there on the front line saying there is hope for this life and the future. Yes. And I would posit, we can be showing it. Yes. I mean, the, the, you keep finding this motif. It's fascinating. You find it in some of the best theologians. This idea keeps coming up of the organic nature of truth, which is fascinating. When I was reading through the, I mean, the first chapters here in terms of the the, um, the communistic, the the very, oh my word, the dark um, pictures that you're describing of uh, the consequences, not just of. Lenin, Marx, Stalin, and so on. The, the socialists, an example you were giving there. The darkness mm. that has come about through, through, uh, through these so-called solutions. But then you keep finding that the, the Jesus has come to give you life. And the, the metaphors are often to do with um, planting, sowing, reaping, growth, life. And we see that seems to be something like, why? Why does he? Because that's what he's like, you know. And it springs up in the darkest places. So I mention uh, there in the book... The French philosopher, philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, mm-hmm. no forbidding, nothing is forbidden, and I make my own authentic reality, and nobody can tell me what to do. Right. Okay, so one of his students, you know who that was? Pol Pot. Pol Pot, back to Cambodia, no forbidding, I do what I want to do, I will be my authentic me, and I will liberate the country by putting into practice this extreme Marxist ideology. Between 1975 and 1977, a quarter of the population perished, killed. Vile. Well, if you read that classic Killing Fields, Living Fields, that um, classic New Life sprang up 
in the darkest of circumstances. And who had the joy? It was the Christians, mm. even amid that grievous, horrific, vile suffering. Mm. Um, so that was the bitter fruit of Jean-Paul Sartre's no forbidding. Uh, his, his partner, Simone de Beauvoir, said it gave her such a thrill to, to see that graffiti on the Paris Sorbonne buildings, no forbidding um, in French. And you think, no, uh, uh, the, the actual results of that in real life are pretty grim mm. because if you say there's no ultimate God, no ultimate truth, no, no ultimate morality, the most powerful win and the most vulnerable suffer. And it's the poor, it's the elderly, it's the marginalised who suffer most. That's right. It, it saddens me, I'm sure it saddens most of us here, when we see the world is giving these solutions and it's a pain when you see uh, the, the, the leaders, speakers in the churches puppeting them and, and repeating them, parroting them rather. And you think, um, really, we have the actual answer. You're... Virtue signalling is not the answer. That's what the world gives as an answer. Mm. Um, I would propose that a lot of the reason that um, pastors, um, of course, there is, it's very hard being a pastor, but it is also, um, there, you have to be brave. You have to make a stand. But also, frankly, there aren't a lot of people out there who are taking the stand that you're taking in this book where you're saying, this is, these are the variables and this is what has led to what we've got to. And is, if you go around sipping poison... The great <laughs> tragedy, though, Ben, is I genuinely think that when you look at the phenomenon that's called critical theory, the idea originally was traditional theory is how to understand reality as it is. And it's your traditional disciplines, medicine, physics, whatever. Critical theory is different. That's not about understanding reality as it is. It's about praxis. It's about achieving social justice. It's about getting to where you want to be. Um, so, for example, critical legal theory says the important thing is equality, justice. So to get there, rogue prosecutors will say, these are the crimes we will not prosecute. Mm. Whole lists of them. They're on the websites of these lawyers in America in certain cities. We will not prosecute. Result, explosion of crime. Yes. Now, in the face of that, many ordinary people are saying, whoa, we don't like this. And they would like a clear, a clear voice from the church. But the tragedy is so many Christian people just want to be liked and so go along with it, thinking, oh, that'll make us popular. And don't speak out clearly. And so the central chapter of that book is the hinge between the lies and the truth. And it's the chapter on the compromised church, mm. where all too many people are going into a church and they're finding the gay pride flag on the altar or whatever it might be, the signals we are, you know, uh, going along with all of this. But the key to that is, does this church actually believe the word of God? Yes. Does this church believe that God has spoken and his word is true? Yes. And those churches that compromise and don't believe that anymore, you tend to find that they are emptying. Yes. And worldwide, the churches that really do believe that God's word is true, those are the churches that are flourishing um, and growing. It's, it's interesting, 100 years ago, Ben, that poem, The Wasteland, was published, T.S. Eliot. And it's this sort of elegy to a crumbling, finished Worldview, And there's a line in there, the lonely chapel, only the wind's home. Um, and Douglas Murray brilliantly describes how you go right through Europe and you see these empty churches. Mm. And Douglas Murray, who's not a believing Christian, but he rightly says, what's the problem? Buying into evolutionary theory, no God, no, no judgment, buying into a liberal theology that hollows out Christianity from within. 
And it takes somebody from outside to say it more clearly than many Christians are saying. It's tragic. And you went and heard him and he told me he was so clear. Yeah. And it was fascinating to see huge numbers, but they all came out. You know, he's got the problem. And he described it. I think it was the Queen Elizabeth Hall just down the road. A couple of thousand young adults there. Hanging on his works, he's a great speaker. But coming out looking miserable, because what's the solution to yes, it all? Yes, quite. Well, as Bible-believing Christians, we, we do know. We do know. And may it be trumpeted, there is a saviour. He took the blame. Did it work? Yeah, he rose. Yeah. He rose. Yeah. And we can say, oh, I come to him yeah. freely, yeah. everlasting love. It's a free gift, That's right. open to everybody. That's right. Mm. That's the solution. That's the solution. It's beautiful. Amen. Wonderful. What a lovely way to end. Thank you so much. Let's thank Sharon James. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.